Hello, I'm Boyan First. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe, and you're listening to Rural Roots. A hair center show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. This time we're going to tackle a very different issue, right? Right. We are going to talk about national parks and world heritage sites. And we're again going to do this in two parts, like the way we did with opioid crisis episode. So this is an episode that you've been talking about and wanting to do for a really long time. It is. In fact, this is the episode I specifically wrote into the grant for the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council that supports this podcast three years ago. So this better be a good one. Oh, it better be a good one. (laughs) (laughs) What are we going to talk about? So in this episode, we are going to talk about who decides what becomes a natural protected site, how that process works, how it impacts people living within the boundaries of national parks and world heritage sites, and why does all this matter, actually? So that's the first episode. What are we going to talk about in episode two? In the second part, so as I was doing these interviews, one of the issues that came up was the indigenous access to protected uh, land areas. Hmm. And I was going to build some of that into this original episode, but it really became an interesting issue all on its own. And I thought we'll dedicate part two to indigenous access to natural uh, protected areas. Right. That sounds really interesting. And I know you've actually talked with people from around the world for that one. Yeah. And for this one, we are going to hear uh, from four people and also right across Canada, which Mm. is great. The first person we are going to hear from is Philip Vanini. Then we are going to talk to Alistair Bath, John Cowder, and finally to Colleen Kennedy. And I know her. She's a Newfoundlander. She sure is. So who's Philip Vanini? You know, we were talking earlier as we were checking levels here that uh, as a journalist, you sometimes interview somebody and you go, oh, I wish I could do that job. Philip Vanini is one of those people. So Dr. Philip Vanini is a Canada Research Chair at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. And he's Canada Research Chair in Public Ethnography. So how does that connect with national parks? Huh. I When he told me what it is that he does, I was thinking like, okay, that's kind of odd. But his research is focused on natural UNESCO World Heritage Sites around the world. Mm. He and his partner, his wife, they do this research together and they bring their 12-year-old daughter on all these amazing trips around the world. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So as Canada Research Chair in Public Ethnography, these are the kinds of questions that he asks. What does wild mean? How it's made? And who is it good for? Cool. So how did you meet him? Totally by accident. Uh, When we were in BC in Nelson, Mm -hmm. I was in BC for a week before that. And one of the places I went to was Gabriola Island, just off the coast of Vancouver Island, because in season three, I would like to do an episode on small island governance. And uh, as I was talking to a whole bunch of people, somebody suggested I should talk to Philip. And uh, that's what we did. Cool. So what was he doing on Gabriola Island? He hates cities, Mm. passionately hates cities. They're just not his jam. Mm. So he lives on Gabriola Island with his family in this beautiful cedar forest. It's just gorgeous. Sounds amazing. It really was. So why do we need wild places? Oh, for so many reasons. 
Someone has made a list of 34 reasons why we need wilderness. Um, and they are every single reason that you can imagine. Going from the um, conservation biology side of things, you know, we need wilderness as a benchmark f to measure healthy ecosystems. To the more philosophical and spiritual, you know, we need wilderness because we need to rejuvenate our spirit. And so again, it really depends on who you ask. For example, in Canada, we need wilderness to define ourselves. Um, in other parts of the world, um, wilderness has been viewed as the last hope. Um, if you go to Europe, you really get the feeling that the very few areas of Europe that are still de defined as wilderness are the last hope for a continent that isn't completely paved over. So I kind of feel like we should be queuing in a Joni Mitchell song right about now. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. It takes paradise, put up a parking lot. Sing it, Joni. <laughs> <laughs> so, seriously, how do we decide what is wilderness? That's the tricky part. Wild places are clearly made by those who protect them and shape them according to certain ideals. Uh, so if someone has a notion of wild as um, an area, perhaps called a wilderness, that should exclude people, then what we find are um, um, fortresses of nature where uh, things like traditional activities like hunting and gathering and fishing are excluded, banned, and those who try are persecuted. So these are very intense environments and very conflict-laden um, environments. If wild um, is, is defined by a more contemporary notion of nature and culture interrelated, uh, then the story is quite different. Then we can see that these places are much more alive socially and culturally as well. And, um, and, and, and they feel different, they look different. Yeah, we really do define ourselves as Canadians um, in terms of our relationships with nature and with the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And as someone who has lived and traveled in different parts of the country, I also think that if you go regionally, there are really different approaches to what wilderness means. Um, whether it's areas where it's primarily defined in, in relation to sort of recreation or traditional uses, you really see those differences from coast to coast. Uh, to coast, let's make it three coasts. Yeah, and uh, I think after 20 years of living in Canada, 24, of living in Canada, it's really different how people feel about natural landscapes. Even when you look at Newfoundland, mm. that's very coastal, and ocean plays a big part of it, to, let's say, Alberta. Yeah. Right? Um, but I think that's also the case in many other places mm. um, around the world. Um, the problem is, I think, that when we get a little bit too eager to protect those areas, we can cause... Um, a lot of harm. Canada has a very long history, and so other countries as well, a very long history of setting up a park and immediately excluding Aboriginal users, um, First Nations who have used those lands for a very long time. Um, we still see it today extensively in Africa as well, um, where Thanks to the work and energy of um, environmental NGOs, new parks are set up to protect wildlife, but at the exclusion of the people that need that wildlife to survive. 
So often the idea of wilderness is great on paper, but it's very contentious in reality because it's at the expense of human livelihood. Yeah, it's really interesting to consider. Wilderness seems like places where humans aren't in control, but in many cases there's very obvious and imbalanced power dynamics. Yeah, and we are going to talk about that. that. That's what I meant, is that almost everybody I talked to in this episode brought it up. Yeah. Right, so I thought we'd make another episode. Another interesting thing there is the idea of, and, and this, this has got to be sort of the ultimate in ego, the idea that we can separate ourselves as people from the environment and from the wilderness. I know, that's a really strange one, right? But it happens all the time, right? Yeah. Um, UNESCO as the international body uh, that regulates and designates world heritage sites has actually made a very strict um, barrier between the two, between the cultural heritage sites and between the natural heritage sites. Uh, but that's actually changing right. as well. We as humans are part of the ecosystem. And b- by dividing nature from culture, we are putting humans in a special category and separating ourselves from that ecosystem. And fortunately, there are more and more understandings of nature conservation that are putting humans back in the ecosystem. Yeah, it's pretty hard to deny the impact that we have on the planet. Um, And we talked about the conflicts that can occur between indigenous people and uh, organizations or governments who are the ones who are defining what is wilderness or what is protected. But I would imagine that the conflicts between those who want to protect the park or, or a space and industry groups uh, like mining or forestry could also be really vicious. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about that actually in, through several examples throughout this episode. And we're also going to talk about how some of those conf- conflicts get resolved. Uh, Philip offered an example from uh, Wood Buffalo National Park on how a UNESCO designation can be used to force Canadian government to take action. Wood Buffalo National Park, uh, which is Canada's largest, uh, straddling the Northwest Territories in Alberta, and that too is uh, being um, scrutinized very closely by both UNESCO and the Canadian government because it might end up on the list of endangered sites. Um, The Mikisu Cree have actually applied UNESCO um, and have managed to um, get their attention to put it on the endangered list as a way of signaling to the Canadian federal government that the um, tar sands, which are upstream, are taking up too much water and polluting too much water, and the effects of that are being seen downstream on the Athabasca River and the Peace Athabasca Delta in Wood Buffalo National Park. So we've seen simpler, something similar here in Newfoundland and Labrador with Gross Morn National Park, correct? Y- yeah, you're right, but you're getting ahead of us mm. here. Uh, we're actually going to talk about that story with Colleen, because um, she has some real interesting things to say right. about it. Uh, but Philip offered a different Newfoundland story about Canada's latest UNESCO World Heritage Site. So that is made famous by the tragically hip Mistaken Point, Newfoundland. That's right. That's Mistaken Point, Right. It's a story about uh, what these kinds of designations can do for a very small community. If you drive uh, to Mistaken Point uh, on the foggy highway, you will at one point or another detect a sign in the fog 
uh, on the side of the road that announces quite proudly with a festive balloon, now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, and you can feel there is pride in that. Um, and the pride comes from the fact that now that small town um, is on the map of the world. But at the same time, there is fear that the sleepiness and the quietness and the peace of that town will be broken up in pieces by uh, RVs rolling down a brand new paved road to the cliffs or new businesses. And, but at the same time, those businesses might be welcomed as well. Yeah, Mistaken Point is a really good example of how a small town was able to get themselves onto the map as this sort of major destination. And then the interesting thing about Mistaken Point is that it was truly a community-led project, and uh, they feel pride in it, and they feel... My sense in talking to people related to it is that they feel as though... It's a bit of, they've, they've been able to take control of their sort of self-determination. But you're right, there could be changes too. It could lead to big changes in that kind of real small, close-knit community. It could. And our next guest is uh, Dr. Auster Bath. He's a geographer at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities here at Memorial. Mm-hmm. And he actually negotiates these kinds of relationships and mediates these kinds of conflicts um, all around the world. Right. Another thing I feel like I should note is whenever a community is working on a project like this, there's always political capital involved as well. So it isn't just, it's not just negotiating between the community members and like the government, the body such as UNESCO. There are so many different, um, there's so many different elements of agency happening within that kind of project. Oh my um, goodness, yes. Project. Yeah. yeah. All over the place. Yeah. Now, I do feel like you probably are a little bit biased towards this one because you're a geographer too. No, 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 no. This, he just, Alistair just has the best job in the world. Um, but seriously, he, he specializes in human-wildlife interactions. Uh, and he's a superb facilitator. He did one of the workshops for us at the Harris Center as well. Um, so he travels around the world and he helps communities and interested parties work out agreements and po- protocols around establishing natural protected areas. And he does it literally everywhere in Kenya, Namibia, Alaska, Romania, Italy, Canada. Yeah, very cool. So what does he have to say about how parks used to be established? Well... Here's a great story, Shek. Hmm. Mm. I think this one might have a political angle. That one <laughs> does have a bit of a political angle. Listen to this. There's actually the story of Jean Chrétien when parks were being established in Canada and Quebec. And he did a lot for establishing a lot of new parks. But he told a story once in front of an audience about how he was flying over an area with his wife. And he said, my dear, I'm going to make a beautiful national park for you down here in Quebec. And uh, he went back, he said, and consulted the Minister of Environment, who was himself. And he said, yes, I agree. Consulted with the minister responsible for parks and protected areas, which was himself. And he agreed. And then he consulted, in fact, uh, the minister responsible for Indian and Northern Affairs, which was himself, and they all agreed. And, of course, he gave this talk, and there was this chuckle in the, in the audience. Um, and then there were other people in the audience that said, yes, and that's exactly the problem with how parks were established before. So the good news is at least he didn't call it Aline Kretchen <laughs> National Park. <laughs> well, well, there is that. Uh, but it seems like it was that was probably the next step. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, we do have a sense that things have changed a fair bit. 
Yes, they certainly did. And, um, you know, Jean Chrétien was really instrumental in establishing quite a few of Canada's protected areas. And the system was what it was. It yeah. was very top-down. Um, but I think it's fair to say that we in Atlantic Canada had a lot to do with how that process works hmm. today. And we have changed the process from those early days in the 70s when the parks are being established in Quebec to today where we do listen much more effectively. I think we don't, uh, you don't see parks being uh, created where they kick out all the locals and then decide to then create a park after it's empty and devoid of people. Um, a lot of that happened because of our own province, so in Gros Morne and in Atlantic Canada, when local people basically stood up and said, look, we don't want to be resettled outside of the park. And when our national parks, like Gros Morne National Park in Newfoundland and Labrador, was established, and Ketch and Kuchboak in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, they were created uh, and people basically said, look, we don't want to be resettled. And Parks Canada had to rethink totally this idea of how to work with people. So a whole bunch of rebellious rural East Coasters yep. were able to make the change. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, of course, that's us. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because national parks like Banff, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which is the oldest in Canada, were created as an economic development opportunity originally. Uh, and Parks Canada had a mandate to provide these protected areas for the enjoyment of the people. Right. Uh, but in the 80s, and it was only in the 80s, that that mandate actually changed. And Parks Canada now places ecological integrity ahead of public engagement. Right. And that's certainly changed things. National parks are huge development opportunities these days um, and as Philip Vanini pointed out earlier they often uh, end up becoming a lifeline for rural and remote communities where there's little else to rely on in terms of economic development um, and it makes sense that we've improved the process to include all of these voices and all these players who are going to be so deeply impacted. Yeah absolutely and it really changes the conversation around those protected lands as well. Today, I think we've significantly improved, but we still have a long way to go. Um, in Canada, there's many more opportunities now where different interest groups around the park are consulted, asked about how they feel about the benefits of creating a protected area. And in some cases, actually local people are demanding to the federal government or provincial governments to say, we would like a park established. Um, and in those cases, that's exactly what you really want to happen. You want the local communities to basically be taking the initiative to say, we see the advantages of either protecting areas so that it prevents perhaps development that they do not want to see inside these protected areas, which also protects and allows for traditional uses of the land. And so we see changes happening on our landscape. And again, in our province in Newfoundland Labrador, Torn Gap Mountains is a, is a good example where the, the local people actually said, this is a worthwhile area to protect. We would like it protected from possible oil and gas developments. Um, as you know, the big mining establishments in Labrador, Voices Bay, there was potential for more exploration. So one of the things that the park, Parks Canada and local people decided was maybe this is an area that gets set aside 
that but still protects traditional lifestyles and uh, then creates an, a protected area for the benefits of all Canadians. And also is becoming an incredible economic development opportunity for so many of these communities, especially Indigenous communities. Uh, I know that many of the different communities in the very large region we're talking about in Labrador, where Torngat is, uh, you know, they are building their community plans around um, the existence of this national park. For example, in Rigolette, I know that uh, they've developed this boardwalk and there's an archaeological dig. And all of that is sort of um, part and parcel of uh, something that they can offer to people who are already going to be coming to travel to see the national park. Yeah, and that is one of the parks that is um, actually difficult to access. Um, just because it's yeah. so far north and the connections to the rest of the country are relatively weak. But the great, th- the great thing about that is it means that local people can provide everything. Everything. And it's not going to be chains who are going to be stepping mm-hmm. in. It's all going to be locally provided food, lodgings, guides, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it allows them to incorporate all of that traditional yes. lifestyle into the whole experience of the yeah, park. Yeah, indeed. And uh, actually, I am hoping that in our next episode, we are going to bring that story of Torngat Mountains National Park uh, to our listeners. Yeah, so these are the conversations that are happening in Canada. What What does it look like elsewhere? You know, Alistair and I had this long interview and he had so many stories. We talked about Maasai warriors turned lion protectors in Kenya. We talked about coyotes in Vancouver and leopards in Kenya. And I think we have time for only two, maybe three short stories. And the first one I want to share comes from India. So that environment would be totally different from here. And I imagine that the attitudes towards wildlife would be different as well for many cultural, religious, uh, geographic reasons. Yeah, and um, I mean, just the sheer abundance of wildlife would make things different. And the sheer abundance of people. We're talking about the second most populous country in the world. Right. I'm working in India now where, uh, you know, India is 1.3 billion people. It still has tigers. It still has wolves. It still has lions. It still has elephants. And, uh, in fact, they've just expanded a protected area for tigers. And that involved having to move 100,000 people. But the people actually demanded to the government that they wish to be moved so that these tigers could continue to survive. To put that in perspective, we're living here, we're at the university here today in St. John's, Newfoundland. It would be like moving all the people in our capital city outside of the city. And I don't think our people would tolerate that for a protected area. India has a tradition where a lot of their wildlife are considered gods. So tigers are considered very spiritual and considered a god. Um, So are cobras or a variety of different species. And in fact, when I was working there and I said said to uh, some individuals I was working with, you know, I said the challenge in this country, I said, is, you know, everything's a god. How do you know you can't kill anything? And they've got great senses of humor, and they came back instantly, and he sort of said, Alistair, we're 1.3 billion people. We, ha- we need more than one god. And, and it's just this, this sense of humor, the sense of willingness to share space that I think makes it work. That's pretty funny. Um, and I know, <laughs> given our reaction to a moose 
running down Duckworth Street downtown or the, from time to time when there's a coyote sighting somewhere in the city. He's probably right. We, uh, we don't make much space for those creatures in St. John's, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> We're not willing to share the space to the same degree that the people in India seem to be. Um, you said there's a second story you wanted to share as well. Yeah, and this one comes from Europe, and it's interesting because, um, you know, it deals with a very urban space. Yeah, uh, when I think Europe, I definitely don't think wild wilderness places. <laughs> I know, me too, when I grew up there, right? Uh, but here's how Alistair thinks of Europe. Many North Americans, when they think of Europe, they probably think Madrid, Barcelona, Paris. When I think of Europe, I think 18,000 wolves. I think 14,000 brown bears. I think of like in northern Spain alone, there's like 4,000 wolves and maybe a couple of hundred brown bears. See, different Europe. The funny thing is I grew up around that stuff, wolves, bears, and I still think of Paris and London as Europe. Yeah. Now, of course, if we think about like, you know, uh, we go back a couple centuries and think about the crests and the so- uh, the shields and everything. There's always a bear and there's, Fairy always, a, tales. there's always, exactly. <laughs> they are obviously very, very present. Um, but where are they today? They're all over the place, apparently. And so this next story comes from a national park near Rome and it involves a bear, some chickens and one seriously upset lady. A good example might be Abruzzo, Malezzo and Lazio National Park in Italy, where inside the park is close to a million people, and yet it still has brown bears, it still has wolves, and it exists about two and a half hours from Rome. I arrived one morning and to, to find out that uh, brown bear had come the night before, knocked down the front door of this woman's um, house where there's kind of like three levels and she lives in the top level. It knocked down this front door, went inside and killed all their chickens. And so I arrived on the next morning and a lot of the work that I do is with wildlife human interactions and particularly in in the context of protected areas and, and national park establishments. And one of the things we, uh, you know, I, I'm listening, you know, we're, we're born with two ears and one mouth. We should be listening at least twice as much as talking. So I'm listening to this woman. And she tells me that last night there was an orso confidente. And the literal translation to that is a confident bear. And she tells me that a confident bear came out of the park and killed her chickens. She says it did this because the park isn't taking good enough care of the bears, isn't feeding the bears enough, isn't looking after the bears enough. Not once does she use the word orso problematico or problem bear. She doesn't want that bear killed. She wants it still completely protected. She does want some compensation for her chickens. Um, But the problem lies with the trust and the credibility of the park and its relationship with the local people. And I think that's our, our challenge when we establish parks, is can we have that positive relationship from the very beginning between the local people, the visitors that may want to visit that place, the people far away from where that protected area is going to be established, but feel that it's just the right thing to do. And even if I can't get to a certain place, knowing that it exists, knowing that there's a part of our planet that has uh, been decided to protect the wildlife, protect the virgin forest, protect the processes, 
Um, all of those values need to be balanced with local people. And then once that park's established, all the relationship building has to continue to occur. Well, the story from Italy brought up dark memories of when I was a kid and I had about 30 chicks in our garage and one night a weasel got in. (laughs) (laughs) But all the same, I'm still supporting that confident bear. Uh, It's a great story. And Alistair asked some really great questions too. The the relationship building part is so important. Um, And that's also an aspect of the whole let's not try to separate humans from wilderness and wildlife we are always in conversation with each other um and we have such an influence on on that natural world right yeah um so but of course there are there's a whole range of interests who are also part of that conversation that do view the land wildlife waterways forests in a completely different way and they do see resource there for the industries that are going to provide employment and often some of the cultural identity for a region and and I don't think we can um, minimize that I think you know uh, you know urban people looking at rural places and saying oh well this mustn't be there's problems there yeah and it's so Alistair we really got discussing that uh, around his latest project because he really believes that you have to start building these relationships right from the beginning. So he shared one more story, and it's from his very recent trip to Romania. And there he's helping to establish the largest national park in Central Europe. And it's this in this gorgeous old-growth forest. As you can imagine, there are not that many old-growth mm-hmm. forests left in Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's also prime forestry land. And those who want it preserved and the forestry industry don't always see eye to eye. So we've got these two groups in the same room together. And the first day, uh, first workshop was all about do we actually want to work together? Because the NGOs have no interest in greening the timber industry. Um, So there was nervousness there on if you're going to be a part of this team, what actually are the things you do? What does it really mean to work together? We actually agreed after a full day workshop that we would work together. And we understand, understood a little bit of the implications of that. And they agreed to a second workshop. At the second workshop, we tried to figure out, do we have a common vision? And we do. We have a common vision that's about sustaining forests, creating protected areas, um, providing economic benefits for local livelihoods and those communities that are gonna be around protected areas and a willingness to work together and share data and share ideas. Lots of issues still to figure out on what does that really mean? How do we actually achieve that? But they've agreed to yet another workshop. Now, what's exciting about this next workshop, which is going to come up in about a month's time, is that the industry has actually invited the NGOs to come to their factory so that they can see some of the challenges they face when they're trying to figure out, uh, is this what I'm buying, legal wood or illegal wood? What exactly happens in the factory? What kinds of measures they take to, to protect and fully utilize the resource? And at the same time, the NGOs said, you know, that sounds like a good idea. We'll participate in that. But we'd also like to take you guys into a virgin forest for a hike. 
and we'd like to all go for a hike through virgin forest so that you can look at this forest through a different lens. And the timber industry said, sounds like a great idea. So our next workshop in the beginning of April, we're going to actually bring these groups together. We're going to go in the field together. And of course, what this activity does is it actually is beginning to share um, trust it increases credibility, and that's usually the biggest conflict in any of these natural resource management issues. Can I, I might still disagree with somebody, but if I can begin to trust them and understand them, and they, they do share similar values, then we overcome that trust-credibility conflict, or what's been called as a behavioral conflict, and we can start working on other conflicts and finding other common, common ground to actually solve some of those conflicts. I love that approach, and I see why you. Well, I see why you envy his job, Owen. Right, and he's so good at this that he gets to work in similar situations around the world. So, if I wanted to establish a protected area in my community, which makes no sense because I do live in an urban area where we've got many, many, many neighborhood cats, probably some mice, lots of crows, what would my first step be? Well, first you would hire our staff. Yeah. Uh, no. Our next guest would probably say that you really need to be patient. Mm. Who is our next guest? So our next guest is Dr. John Cowder. Now, he doesn't work at the university. He's a senior geologist with the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources. And he played a key role in establishing several World Heritage Sites in Atlantic Canada. But the one that he's probably most proud of is the Joggins site in Nova Scotia. So the Joggins site in Nova Scotia that he's going to talk about is a, is a, a site of note for its fossils. Mm-hmm. How was he involved in the creation of that, um, of that location? Well, it's a long story. Actually, it's a very long story. 16 years from the time that the first mention of World Heritage and Joggins became inscribed on the World Heritage list. And whether, if I had known it was going to be 16 years, I probably never would have stayed with it that long. But once you get more and more invested in something, if you're stubborn or if you feel passionately or both, um, you know, you tend to stay with things. 16 years. I mean, that's long enough to get a driver's license. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) Everything happened. (laughs) Everything you can imagine happened. So maybe the best place to start is actually at the beginning. As always. As always. When I was a very young man, I was asked by the deputy minister of the Department of Mines to go to a coal miners meeting at the miners hall in River Herbert, next door to Joggins, to tell them the news that our drilling program had failed to find adequate resources to open a new underground coal mine. This is an area for where, where there had been underground coal mining for almost 400 years, since the 1600s. And I thought it was a big honor to be asked to do this. But the moment I stood up, and I can still picture it now, it was like, a, it reminds me of a scene from a Dickens or something. There was a, the, the light coming in through the windows. They assembled the faces of the miners sitting there, and they were glued to every word I had to say. And none of them were smiling. None of them were happy for me that I had been asked by the deputy minister to do this. Nobody, th- you know, they were just hanging on me every word. 
and I realized the gravity of what I was telling them, that their history of, of their livelihood, their culture that went back to their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers was over. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure when it was a conscious thought that if there was something I could do in the future to help out this community, then I would. He's such a good storyteller and uh, it's just the sort of compassionate uh, and engaged approach you hope to see from public servants too. Yeah, and you can imagine the trajectory of this community, yeah. right? From community of 5,000, Joggins became a community of 500. Yeah. And everything closed, yeah. right? Everything. Um, so one day he was in a meeting with two of his colleagues and they decided to explore the World Heritage Site designation for Joggins. Um, they hired a consultant, wrote a report, but it didn't move very fast. Eventually, a local man, Mark Boone, got a hold of this report. He brought it to the attention of the town. Do you realize that we were under consideration as a World Heritage Site? And he got enthusiastic, and this created discussion within the town, which was really important. And then um, that picked up steam from then on. It really was not something that was we normally did here in this department, which transformed from the Department of Mines through Mines and Energy to Natural Resources. But it was not our traditional way of working. So this was something quite new for us. And once the politicians became infected with the enthusiasm of the community, it became okay for me here to work on this, to come out of the closet, if you like, and actually work on this in a, in a very open way and to throw my, my resources. So all that took 16 years? Oh, no, 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 no. That was just the beginning. So it took a lot of house starts and pursuing options that didn't quite pan out and planning and writing reports. And then they had to get on the tentative list. That sounds, uh, if not ominous, still quite... <laughs> Kafkaesque. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're all the way there. No, not quite all the way there. Tentative list doesn't sound like much, hey? Eh? What a name. But a tentative list is a list that a country has to submit to UNESCO saying these are sites that are in the queue that we in the future are going to take forward as a World Heritage Site. If you are not on that tentative list, you cannot go forward because you have to have the official approval of the state party, which is Canada in this case. And we weren't on the tentative list. Not only that, there had been a recommendation based on a... On a Oh, I'll put it kindly, an incomplete uh, consultant's report uh, that gave the evaluators of the first tentative list the idea that Joggins did not have what it took to be a World Heritage Site. So not only were we starting from no knowledge with the federal government, with Parks Canada in particular, who are the, the gatekeepers of World Heritage, they actually had a negative opinion of Joggins. They actually had a report that Joggins did not have what it took to be a World Heritage Site. So we had to reverse that. So they weren't even just starting from nothing. They were starting from behind. But obviously, they eventually made it to the list. They did. And four years later, they became a World Heritage Site. Wow. So, yeah, four years. But in the context, I guess that's actually a tiny amount of time. <laughs> it was only a quarter of the time. <laughs> So what is Joggins like today? Uh, I think I'll let John tell you that. 
Well, Joggins is like a lot of former coal mining towns around the world. They all seem to look the same in some ways, except this one is perched on a, on the Bay of Fundy. But it's a it's it's a town of modest houses. The coal miners were not wealthy people. When you go down onto the cliffs, go off away from the village, get onto the shore. The cliffs are like I'm getting goosebumps now, and I've seen them countless times. But every time I do, they don't. They, the grandeur of the cliffs—it's impressive. And they were written up by the by Sir Charles Lyell, who was to geology as Charles Darwin was to biology. Described these cliffs as the greatest exposure in the world of the of the coal measures, as they were called, the coal-bearing strata that are found around the world. And whether that's true or not, just to have that commendation. We, we made a lot of use of that passage, but I'll tell you. But that's, it's true. You see these, these cliffs and they're timeless. There's something timeless about them. Because they're wild and woolly and rugged, when you're on the cliffs, you can imagine, as, as the fog touches the cliffs, you can imagine you might encounter Charles Lyell coming around the corner or the ghost of Sir William Dawson. It's, it's, it gives you this timeless sense and there's, there's this, always a sense of discovery as you're walking the cliffs because the tides batter those cliffs and they expose the cliffs to erosion, material falls from the cliffs and, and there, laying there on the ground, seeing the first light of day for 300 million years, a fossil. It could be something very insignificant or the first reptile to have walked on planet Earth. That is, to me, is the, is the experience of Joggins. It's this linking of history, of discovery, of how we have interpreted the world, come to see ancient history, and, and this place in particular, and how it's played a role. It's that linkage that really makes this place special. So the amazing thing there is that He's obviously fallen in love with the place. And he sure had, did. Yeah, and you can tell he's, it, it means so much, the geography and the physical place. But to go back to that linkage between place and people and wilderness, uh, initially it was the you know awful announcement that he had to make to these people that inspired the change. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, you asked earlier what it would take to establish a protected area, and... Um, he certainly would want everybody to understand that it's a long-term process. But he also had two other pieces of advice. The community should be involved, not just leave it to the administrators, whether it's Parks Canada or another administrator that is responsible for making sure that UNESCO is happy, that all the boxes are ticked off in protection, integrity, authenticity, and management, but to make sure that the community has a voice at the table early on so that they know what the expectations are, what are the, what are the expectations uh, so they don't have false expectations, but also that their wishes are taken into account. This happened at Joggins. Um, where the community was involved in the early planning. And there are lessons to be learned there, that things could have been done different, better. But this is a kind of an iterative process, you know, where we learn from one case and apply it to another. My advice to a community is if this is not being bottom-driven by the community, which is not likely to be, 
if it's a World Heritage Site, then demand a, a prominent seat at the table, but also have temper that with expectations, realistic expectations of what m may may accrue to the community, what benefits might come, and be realistic to some homework with other communities. So a place that comes to mind uh, where the community has been very involved in those processes is the Grossmore National Park here in Newfoundland and Labrador. The last voice that we're going to bring you today is Colleen Kennedy, um, the dynamic executive ex director of Grossmore Cooperating Association. Yeah, Colleen's dynamic. That's a great word for her. She has so much energy. I have no idea how she actually does everything she does, but she seems to be everywhere yeah. on the West Coast, right? And uh, she actually has a funny story about how the Grossmore Cooperators started. In the beginning, when they formed uh, in '93. Uh, we were being set up and, you know, most groups were called Friends Off the Park Group. And, you know, in our communities, when we brought all the community members together, they said, we don't really know if we want to say we're friends yet. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, and, and this was a little bit before my time because they were setting up as, you know, I, I, I was the first employee, but there was uh, other stakeholder groups and members of the community sitting around. They said, no, we're not sure we're friends yet so let's just say we all cooperate so that's how we got our name and you know uh we've come a long way in 24 years and i keep every time i do a presentation or, or meet somebody and i tell them who i work for and name us no no no, i'm not a grocery store because as soon as ever you say co-op they think you're some type of co-op and we're not a traditional co-op it's we're a cooperating group <laughs> that's funny and it's uh, an awesome Newfoundland and Labrador sort of way of approaching such Absolutely. a thing. Absolutely. <laughs> no, we'll do it out. <laughs> so they're basically an NGO. And these days they operate a host of businesses, events, opportunities in the park. And they also organize really neat um, arts-related opportunities and festivals. Everything from a dance festival to a writer's retreat to arts residences. But... Um, while never losing contact and always having the involvement of the local and rural people who live there. So a lot of urban people are attracted to it, but it's very much an opportunity for collaboration between urban and rural as well, which is very cool. It is, and uh, it has really become, even over the last 10 years, this mecca where people mm -hmm. from all over Newfoundland actually go in the summer because there's so much going yeah. on. And they also have something they call Gross Morning Institute for Sustainable Tourism, and the entire organization now is involved in this really focused conversation around bringing all of the communities in the park together around the common vision. Right. We have seven incorporated communities within the park boundary um, that we work with, and uh, we are now actually in the process of trying to get these to get uh, a regional group with a regional vision and, and we're looking for a truly Grossmore vision that reflects community, it reflects Parks Canada's vision it reflects artists' vision so, you know, trying to build a plan that uh, is inclusive and reflects all the stakeholders' dreams of where they want to be, say, in 10, 12 years out so we've really been emphasizing the importance of communities working together and having their voices heard. It's been a common thread throughout all of these stories. Gross Morin is one of the places that actually has both of the designations we've been talking about. It's a national park, but it's also a world heritage site. So with, with all of those layers, 
has it complicated things for the people who actually live there? And what have been the benefits? It's interesting because uh, I actually asked Colleen about, you know, did the world heritage status increase the number of visitors? And in the beginning, it didn't. Um, she said, you know, North Americans don't seem to put as much value. But as they, as the nature of the visitors is changing, mm -hmm. they're seeing a lot more Europeans who do deeply care about the fact that they have UNESCO designation. Right. But the other thing is that uh, once they became national park, there were limits to um, traditional activities like trapping, hunting, mm -hmm. and there are some sunset clauses and some activities still allowed. But once the, when they became the World Heritage Site, um, Colleen says not much actually changed. We have very clear boundaries with regards to us parks land and was community land and way back before the uh, park was designated uh, there was I mean a federal provincial agreement that laid out the the rules as to what locals were allowed to do or residents were allowed to do and not allowed to do so when it came to the UNESCO th point of view I don't think it placed any more restrictions on the community I think it just gave them that added protection to protect the resource that they already add. So, you know, that second designation, I, did, I don't think restricted you any more than the Parks Canada designation did. So they've been using the power of the designation um, without finding that it's been limiting what they've been able to do. They really did. And it's interesting because they didn't just use it in order to attract more visitors and foster economic development, but they used it politically as well. Um, they were able to leverage that designation when they were trying to stop the construction of power lines through the national park mm -hmm. land. Uh, and also they were able to bring about the moratorium on the potential fracking developments uh, in that area. What I find really interesting is that, um, as Colleen and I talked about it, is that now you have this real sense within those communities that Grossmorn is something worth protecting. Mm. I think when you, you see people proud to present, one time you would ask somebody where they're from, they'd say, I'm from, you know, North Point, and you'd ask the community, somebody, community member from Rocky River, I'm from Rocky River, and no matter where you went, that's where you said. You, 80% of the people that travel outside the region now to say, where are you from? They said, we're from Grossmore. Because they have a real understanding that people understand where it is and value where it is, and they have a sense of pride about it. So they, they, you know, they stepped away from, I'm from North Point, or I'm from Rocky, or I'm from Woody Point, I'm from Grossmore. And, and, and that took a while, but I think that's where you see the movement, is people are proud to say now, I am from Grossmore. That's amazing, the idea that the park has become this strong component of regional identity. And, uh, for example, you know, we've released, through the Harris Center, really difficult population projections for the next 20 years for some of those areas. And one of the biggest recommendations that's come out of those, rec uh, those um, population projections, which are saying there are going to be many fewer people, things are going to have to change. One of the big things that we've been seeing is that regions are going to have to start to collaborate within themselves. And that is a challenge. That isn't how it's been. We've got these um, rural, sometimes coastal communities, and they really have always focused on, on um, surviving in solitude. Um, but this is an amazing example of a bunch of different communities coming together for the regional good. And uh, even outside of park issues, now these communities are going to be able to collaborate on some of those big looming 
scary challenges that are coming in the future and they're going to be in a better place because of that yeah and it's this whole conversation with colleen actually ties it really nicely to what philip bonini was saying about how wilderness plays such a big part Mm -hmm. in creating our sense of shared identity yeah so the other thing that colleen was very clear about was the benefits that the park and the world heritage uh, site designation brought to the whole region Mm -hmm. it's a wonderful growth in our community and we've been very fortunate uh parks uh and you know other services that's in our region has helped sustain our region i mean a lot of communities are seeing no new entry into the, the uh, kindergarten level. We're still very blessed. We, you know, with classes over 10 to 11, which may not be a lot in St. John's, but, you know, in rural Newfoundland, when you you have, you know, like over 10, 12 kids coming into your school every year, you know, you still have breath in your community, right? Wow, you still have breath in your community. That's something that many rural regions will understand, and, and that has been a challenge. Yeah, for sure. And I was thinking that maybe we can end this episode with a quote from Dr. John Calder with the Nova Scotia government, um, who also talked about uh, that during our interview. There is promise, there is real promise for communities in rural areas, many of which are, are struggling because of the changes we've seen, especially to natural resources over the last few decades that this is a change, a chance for communities to, to, you don't need to necessarily reinvent yourselves in a different way, but to actually stay true to who you are, but to see yourselves through a different lens, to see yourselves as the world might see you, and to realize the, 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 the special things that you can bring to the world. But I think the self-belief, you've gone from uh, losing, 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 losing your resources, losing the industries, losing population, to thinking that you actually are special. To me, that is the biggest promise for any of these designations, in especially in rural, rural Canada and Atlantic Canada. And what a w- wonderful way to end the episode. So we covered a lot of material and a lot of distance in this episode. We spoke with Dr. Philip Vanini from Royal Roads University in Victoria, BC, Dr. Alistair Bath from the Department of Geography in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And we also heard from Dr. John Cowder with the Department of Natural Resources with Nova Scotia Government and Colleen Kennedy from Grossmont Cooperators. That was great. And I'm really looking forward to part two. Yeah, me too. I hope that uh, we can do that in a couple of weeks. So uh, maybe time to finish this episode? Yep, let's do it. Already. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks what is rural in the 21st century? Rural Roots is a partnership between the Harris Center at Memorial University in Newfoundland and Labrador, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. We record the show at the CHMR campus radio at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. And we are constantly helped and assisted by our intrepid volunteer producer, Rebecca Nolan, who we appreciate deeply. (laughs) (laughs) You can hear Rural Roots through our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. Or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app. 
And you can also hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry rural routes, just let them know, and they can find us on the Campus and Community Radio Program Exchange, or they can get in touch with us directly. So that brings us to the end of another episode. I'm Rebecca Cahal. And I'm Brian Fierce. Thanks for listening. See you next time.